Well, good afternoon, Cornerstone. How are you today? Good. Thank you. My name's Darren McWaters, and I'm visiting from out of town. I'm a pastor of a church in Long Beach, and just excited to be able to be with you today. And a happy new year to you all. I should also say welcome and happy new year to anybody who may be watching online. We're excited that you're with us as well. So regardless of whether you're in the room or maybe watching this from home or I suppose in your car on a phone or something, we're excited that you're with us. And uh, it's been really fun to be out. I've got family that lives in Glendale, so it's been cool to be able to uh, come and see them for a couple of days. And then I'm headed back to Long Beach as soon as this service is done. I'm going to get in my car and go home. So we'll see what happens. As we, talk about, uh, as we talk about New Year's, you know, we talk about moving into 2015 and preaching on the first Sunday of a new year is always a little daunting because there's kind of this expectation of like setting a tone for a new year. And we already feel a little bit of pressure, don't we? As you come into a new year, you feel this pressure from kind of all angles to set resolutions, to have some idea of how you're going to do things differently, what way you're going to live, how, how things are going to be different in the coming year. And I think that becomes even increasingly difficult for Christians because not only do you have the pressure of, well, maybe you want to be more healthy or maybe you want to save more money or maybe you want to make new friends or whatever, but, but then you've got on top of that the sense of, I also want to please God with my life. I also want to live up to whatever expectation he has for me. I want to make sure that I spend my year doing the things and living the life that God wants from me. And the problem for us a lot of times, I think, as Christians is that we feel this intense pressure and it almost drives what we do all year long, thinking about what God wants from us. Now, there is no question that God wants things from us, that he has expectations, he created us with a purpose, so he wants us to live our lives and glorify him, to be his ambassadors, those kinds of things. But, but there's also a sense, I think, sometimes when we get so focused on living the life to try and give God what he wants from us, that we miss something that's actually even more important. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I think for many of us as Christians, we feel this sense of wanting to give God what he wants from us without ever stopping to recognize that what's more important than what God wants from us is what God wants for us. I don't even know if maybe you've taken the time to ask yourself the question as you move into 2015, what is it that God wants for you this year? What are the things that God hopes and anticipates will happen in your life and in my life this year? I don't know that I think about what God wants for me because I can be preoccupied with what God wants from me. And that happens because in our world, we're kind of trained to just sort of always be focused on what somebody's trying to get. We kind of get, um, get this calloused idea because almost every relationship we enter into, whether it be a business relationship or whatever, there's always somebody angling for something. We get used to that as kids. People are asking you for your email addresses. People are asking you for your phone numbers, whatever. And you always kind of want to look at them a little, a, a, a little crossways and go, you know, why exactly are you asking me this stuff? Why are you engaging in me? We, we kind of put up our guard because we expect that people are just in the relationship for what they can get out of it. And we do that with God. We assume that he's just in a relationship, that he just created us because he wants something. Even when we're little, we kind of have this mindset. My wife was at Target with our, uh, with our kids, and, and she was shopping and whatever. She came out of the Target, and uh, there was a guy standing there right outside of the Target, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm raising money to help homelessness, uh, help fight homelessness in Long Beach. Would you like to make a donation? And my wife and I kind of have a standing policy that anytime somebody asks us for money, if we have cash on us, we'll give it to them. Now, I know what you're thinking, uh, I don't have any cash on me today. So I knew I was coming here. I figured I would tell this story. So I purposefully emptied my pockets of cash. So don't try and come and get it for me later. But anytime I do have cash, if somebody asks me for it, I always give it to them. So 
There's a, a guy outside of Target. He says, would you like to help with homelessness in Long Beach? My wife, she checks her pockets. She looks in her purse. She goes, I'm really sorry. I don't have any cash today, but I hope you hit your goals. And I really do care about homelessness in our city. And I, I wish you the best. And the guy, without missing a beat, he goes, it's no problem. He goes, can I just tell you, you have a really beautiful haircut. Like, I really like your hair. It's super pretty. And my wife was like, thanks. Like, that's so nice. Like, how often does that happen? So she's walking to the car. She's pushing the cart. My little boy, Will, who's my youngest, he was like four at the time. He's sitting in the cart. And she goes, wasn't that man so nice? He was so nice. He just told me out of the blue. Like, I didn't even have any money to donate. And he told me that my hair looked pretty. Isn't he such a nice man? And my four-year-old goes, um, he was just trying to get your money. And my wife goes, what, you don't think it's possible that maybe he actually thinks mommy is beautiful and maybe he thought he should tell her that she had a beautiful haircut? And my four-year-old goes, no. <laughs> right? We get callous from the time we're little and we, we bring that into our relationship with God. And there are whole groups of people that are driven all year long by feeling like God wants this from me, he wants this from me, I've got to give God what he wants. And I will say to you this morning, and what I hope to, to open up in the scriptures together, is this idea that it's more important for us as disciples, it's more important for us as created beings to focus in on what God wants for us before we ever have a conversation about what he wants from us. I'd love for, for you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bible this afternoon, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll study this together. There's a section at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul writes the second of, of two prayers that are in this letter. He writes for the church at Ephesus. And this prayer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us kind of a great encapsulation of God's hopes for us as people. Paul prays this for the church at Ephesus, but by extension, it is a great picture of what God wants for his people. Let's look at this together. We'll start in verse 14. Ephesians 3.14 says this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love this prayer. I love that he prays this for the church at Ephesus, and I love that by extension I can receive it this morning, and so can you. I love the way he starts it. He says, look, here's who I'm praying to. I'm bowing my knee before the one from whom all things in heaven and on earth derive their name. He's recognizing before he even begins the prayer that God is the source of life, that he's the source of all things. He's the one by whom all things were created, all things are sustained by him. They all exist for his glory. That's who he's turning to for help. He says, I bow my knee before God from whom every family in heaven and earth derive their name. And then he says this, I pray that according to his glorious riches, he would grant you. And then we're gonna understand what he, what he prays that God would grant but before we even talk about that, let's talk about this word, according. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. According to his riches. And that word according is important also. Some of your translations might say out of his riches. Or you may have heard this passage before and people will say, I pray that out of his glorious riches he would grant you. But the word translated according is actually a better translation. And it's important because it tells us something about what it is that God pours into our lives. You see... 
When we talk about God giving to us or blessing us out of his great riches, we're just talking about a portion of all that God has. But when we talk about God blessing us according to his great riches, we're talking about a proportion. Let me tell you what I mean. If, um, if Bill Gates, right, the guy from Microsoft, if Bill Gates were to give you a crisp, clean $10 bill, right, he hand, I don't know why he's doing this, maybe he's buying Girl Scout cookies from you, whatever. If he gives you a $10 bill, he's giving to you out of his great riches, right? He's giving you money that came out of his bank account. That is out of his riches, that $10. But if Bill Gates gives you $100,000, he's giving to you according to his great riches. He's giving to you something that is a proportion of what he has from his great wealth. When he says here that I'm praying, I'm bending my knees before the God in heaven who, who, from whom all things drive their name, and he says, I pray that according to his great riches, he would grant you strength. It's important to understand that God is blessing us not just out of his wealth, but according to his wealth, in accordance with his wealth, a proportion of all that God is and all that God has. Paul prays to that God, this for us. He says this. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, this is verse 16, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, I want you to see this morning as we walk through this that each of these things he's going to pray, they kind of stack on each other. They kind of lead into each other. And the first thing he prays for us, the first thing he explains that God wants for us is strength. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I pray for strength all the time. I pray for strength to get through difficult circumstances. I pray for strength to make my way through hard conversations, to get through illness. I, I pray for strength to deal with uh, you know, low money in my bank account or whatever, just kind of that internal fortitude to just sort of get through it. A lot of us find ourselves praying for strength, but a lot of times when we're praying for strength, what we're praying for is kind of an, an external shield. It's the ability just to kind of power through in life. And that isn't what Paul says God wants for us here. It isn't what Paul prays for us. According to the glorious riches of God, he's praying that God will what? Strengthen us where? Not just externally, but that he would strengthen us in our inner being according to his spirit. That he would strengthen us in our inner being through the power of his spirit. Everywhere in the scripture that we see the Holy Spirit working, we always see the Holy Spirit working in power. In Acts chapter one, it says you'll receive the spirit and he'll come in power. There's power that comes with the spirit of God. And he empowers us not just externally, not just with the ability to sort of make our way through life, but he gives us power in our inner being through his spirit for a purpose. And we see the purpose in verse 17. He says, I pray that according to his riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being for a reason. Here it is. So that, here's, here's the purpose for the strength. You have inner strength through spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I don't know that we pray for that kind of strength a lot, right? We pray for strength to deal with difficult circumstances. We pray for strength to make it through illness. But he's saying here, I pray that God will strengthen you in your inner being according to the power of his spirit, what? That Jesus would dwell in your heart through faith. I love that word dwell. And I don't know that a lot of people get this. I don't know that a lot of people have this. I think there may be some of us in this room who don't really grasp this idea, but the, the concept is that by the strength of the Holy Spirit in our inner being, we would have a sense that Jesus is settled down and at home in us. See, I think for a lot of Christians, we sort of live in this anxiety and fear that at any moment we're gonna do something that's so bad or we're gonna do something that's so faithless or we're gonna do something that's so ignorant or foolish that God will abandon us. Maybe we feel that way because we've grown up in families where parents left, families fell apart. Maybe you've been in relationships that dissolved. Maybe you worked at a job 
where you didn't do the job the boss wanted you to do, and as a result, you lost the job and got fired. And so we live with this tension and anxiety, and we attribute that to Jesus. We kind of get this mental image of Jesus that he's got his bags all packed. And yeah, he's in our life, but he's just waiting for an excuse to hit the road. You know what I'm saying? That he's watching us every moment to see if we'll do something wrong or something so wicked that he'll call it a day and he'll hit the road and abandon us. We live with this sense of wanting to try and please him because we just want him to stay with us. But what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 3 is that when he empowers us by the strength of his spirit in our inner being, what happens is that we have a sense of rest in his presence that we recognize that Jesus is settled down and at home in us. The picture is not of a Jesus with his bags packed looking for a reason to leave, but a Jesus who's kicked off his shoes and is resting on the couch of your life. He's taken his clothes out of the suitcases and packed them into the cabinets. He's here to stay. He's not going anywhere. He didn't arrive in our lives because we cleaned ourselves up. He arrived in our lives because of his grace, because of his divine choice, and he's not going anywhere. The strength of the Spirit of God in our inner being empowers us to recognize the Lord Jesus settled down and at home in us, at rest in us. Doesn't that sound nice? That's something God wants for you. He wants you to feel that sense of peace. He goes on. He goes on here to say this, so that Christ, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He also talks not only about Jesus being settled down and at home in us, but that we would be rooted and grounded in his love. That as he's more settled in us, we'd be rooted and grounded. Now there's there's an agricultural word there and there's an architectural word. The agricultural one is rooted. Jesus himself uses this picture in John 15 when he talks about being the vine and we being the branches. In John 15 verse four, Jesus himself says, abide in me, And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Paul says here is that God wants Jesus to be settled down and at home in us, that we would be rooted in him, that we would be drawing sustenance from him. He's the vine, and we draw our sustenance from him. Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you draw sustenance from? What satisfies you? Is it a relationship with another human being? Is it a job you love? Is it a hobby? Is it a sporting event? What is it that really just you find yourself having to tune into in order to be sustained? And let me ask you another question. If it's anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, how long does it sustain you for? Ecclesiastes says the eye never has its fill of seeing nor the ear its fill of hearing. We are insatiable people. We aren't intended to be satisfied by anything other than the true vine. That's why Jesus says what he says in John 15. And yet many of us are drawing sustenance. We're trying to find life in all kinds of other things, in all kinds of other places, and they are destined to disappoint us. Jesus is the true vine. He's the only place we find real sustenance. And so it says here that as we are empowered by the Spirit of God in our inner being with strength, that Jesus is dwelling in our hearts through faith, that he settled down and at home in our lives, and we are both rooted, drawing sustenance from that love, and also grounded. Now, grounded is an architectural term. Depending on the translation of the Bible, you have the, that word grounded. might be translated established. But the idea is that Jesus is foundational, that he's the foundation of our life. I think for many of us, we, we sort of want to build our lives the way we want to build them, don't we? We want to call the, the shots. We want to be the ones who decide where we're going to go and when we're going to go and what we're going to do when we get there. 
We have our 15-year plan and our 20-year plan, and we have everything kind of lined up. We build these lives the way we want to. And then for a lot of us, once we've built the life and established the life that we want, what we do is we hear about Jesus, or we've grown up in a Christian family, or you've been around the things of the faith, and so what you do is you, you fly a Jesus flag over your house, right? You built the house, but you're going to put some sort of external decoration on it that looks Christian, some sort of external decoration that shows the world that you fly a Jesus flag. Listen, Jesus doesn't want to be an ornament on your house. The Lord Jesus does not want to be a decoration to the house that you built, he wants to be the very foundation upon which everything else rests. Many of us find our lives crumbling and falling apart. And you know why? Because we built them on a foundation that's based on ourselves or our selfishness. That's based on the whole wrong kind of currency. Jesus is the foundation. His love is the thing upon which everything we do, every endeavor we set out upon, every goal we make, and every task we set for ourselves has to spring from. He's the foundation. So what does it say? Paul says, I pray that according to his glorious riches, he would give you strength in your inner being through his spirit, that Jesus would be settled down and at home in you, and that then you rooted, both drawing sustenance from, and grounded, founded upon, the love of Christ would have the ability to do something else. Look at what it says next. Back to Ephesians chapter three. He says that you being rooted, this is verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's a tall order, isn't it? He goes, here's what I, here's what I think. As Jesus has settled down and at home in you, you're gonna be drawing sustenance from him, you're gonna be grounded upon him, rooted and grounded. And then he says, together with all the saints, you're gonna begin to comprehend the uncomprehendable love of God. That you're gonna start to know the unknowable and you kind of scratch your head and go, what's he, what's he talking about? How can we know the unknowable? Well, there's a couple of key things in this, things that God wants for us. The first one is there's a clear call to community here. He doesn't say that we in isolation will begin to comprehend the unknowable love of God. What does he say? He says that together with the saints, together with the saints, we begin to grasp something of the unknowable love of God. How does that work? Well, see, God is working in my life on a daily basis, and if you talk to me, and if we're in life together, I'll be able to relate to you the way that God is putting his glory on display in me. And the more we talk, I'll see the ways that God is putting his glory on display in you. And my view of God will expand because we're in community together. And the broader our community gets, and the more deeply, deeply we become in fellowship with each other, the more community we have, the bigger my view of God gets. Why? Because I not only see the way he loves me and the way he's loving me in an ongoing way, but I get to see his love on display in you. And in the love on display in you, it is love on display in you. That's the very value of community that we can tell the stories of who God is and what he's done and our, and our view of him will expand. People will say, well, you know what? I don't need church. I don't, I don't need to be involved in a community group. I don't need to be involved in a Bible study. I don't, I don't need other Christians around me. In fact, Christians kind of bug me, so it's just gonna be me and Jesus, right? Jesus himself says that community is essential. We can't live without the body. We're not intended to, to function in isolation. And one of the reasons is this right here, that, that as we come together as saints, we begin to increasingly grasp. And the word here that's translated comprehend in Ephesians chapter three, that we would comprehend the unknowable love of God, that word comprehend would be better translated apprehend. Apprehend, the, the ongoing pursuit and collection of something. When you think about someone being apprehended, you picture like a criminal, right? 
A criminal who's shoplifted some stuff from the 7-Eleven and he runs out and the policeman goes after him and he increasingly apprehends. Maybe he grabs onto a scarf and he starts to reel that guy in. He gets a hold of a collar and then a shoulder and he pulls the guy. He apprehends the criminal. The picture here is that together with the saints, you and I apprehend the unknowable love of God. What's the idea? The idea is that in little bits and pieces we begin to reel him in. You know, you and I will never truly comprehend the love of God. Because that's how high and wide and deep and long it is. It's so big that we'll spend eternity trying to wrap our brains around the depth of God's love for us. But arm in arm in community, together, we can start to reel it in bit by bit. We get the scarf and we get the collar and we get the shoulder. We start to encapsulate this idea of who he is. Something God wants for us that we would know his love even though it's unknowable in totality. He says here, I pray that God will strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ will be settled down and at home in you and that you then being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, as we begin to apprehend the unknowable love of God together, we get filled up with the fullness of God filled up with the fullness of God and you go, what does that mean? What's he talking about there? Well, there's something beautiful that happens in that when you and I begin to understand more and more of this unfathomable love of God, when we're rooted and grounded upon it, Jesus has settled down and at home we've got rest and peace in his love for us, that what happens is we become filled up with him. What's it? it means we start to look like him. It means that over time we're being transformed into the image of Christ. It's called sanctification. One day we'll be glorified. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. God is conforming us to the image of his son and he does that as we apprehend the knowledge of who he is. We get filled up. The measure of the fullness of God, we start to look like our savior. It says in Romans 13, verse 14, that we're to put on Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're supposed to be looking more and more like our Savior, and that doesn't happen because we try. Now, let me tell you, I, I know how this thing works, right? You look at this list. We've been talking this morning about how it's, it's not enough to just understand what God wants from you, but first and foremost, you have to understand what God wants for you. And then we take this list, and we go, well, what does God want for us? Man, he wants us to have strength in our inner being so that he'll be settled down and at home in our lives, that we'll be rooted and grounded in him, together with the saints, increasingly understanding his unknowable love, and then that we begin to be filled up with a measure of the fullness of God. And if you're like me, you look at that list and you go, yeah, I don't think I can do that. That doesn't sound like something that's actually attainable. It doesn't sound like something we can actually do. And so for a lot of us as Christians, you know what we tend to do? We tend to set our sights on something that's easier. Easier for us to do in our own strength, don't we? We set a New Year's resolution that goes, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible more this year than I did last year, because I'm pretty sure I can do that, right? I'm going to try and share my faith with one person a week this next year, because I'm pretty sure I can do that. And it's not that reading our Bible or sharing our faith are bad things. Those are great things. The problem is that sometimes we set our sights on those because those are things that we can do. And when we look at the big things that God wants for us, we go, I can't do that. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for a long time. You go, I don't know that I'm rooted and grounded in his love. I don't know that I feel Jesus settled down and at home in my life. This isn't, this isn't something I can just check a box on. It's not something I can just do this afternoon and call it done. 
And that's hard for us to justify. It's hard for us to deal with, isn't it? Why? Because we live in America where from the time we were little, our parents were telling us that story of the little engine that could, right? Your parents tell you that story. They go, oh, Darren, if you want to be the best volleyball player on the team, you just think you can, 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 and you'll get that train over that mountain or whatever, right? We grow up believing that if we think it, we can be it. Then we come to a passage like this that talks about knowing the unknowable love of God and being filled to a measure the fullness of God, and we can't think our way there. It doesn't matter how much you tell yourself that you're going to fill yourself up with a measure of the fullness of God, you're not going to get there. And so you look at it and you go, well, I'm just going to read my Bible every day because that I know I can do. What if there's something better for you than what you can do for yourself? And again, I'm not saying the daily Bible reading is the wrong thing, but I'm saying maybe you set your sights too low. Is it possible that God wants something more for you than you want for yourself? That he wants you to be conformed to the image of his son, to grow in the, the knowledge of him, to be rooted and grounded and filled with strength from his spirit so that Jesus would be settled down and at home. And you might look at that and say, it's impossible. But I think that's exactly why he finishes the prayer the way he does. Look at verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. It's almost like Paul can hear us saying, I can't do it. I can't do this. And Paul goes, right. We're not talking here about something you can do, not something to go and be enacted. It's something that God wants for you. It's something that he does in you. And a couple years ago at Christmas, I was asking all my kids what they wanted. You know, just trying to get like a, like a tentative Christmas list for gifts and whatever. And most of my kids were easy. I, I've got four. Most of my kids were really easy. They wanted really simple things. But my son, Hank, who's my middle son, he says, uh, okay, dad, I know exactly what I want for Christmas. And I was like, okay, well, tell me, what do you want for Christmas? He goes, dad, I want that, um, I want that remote control tank uh, that has the sharks painted on the side. And I'm like, okay, remote control tank with sharks painted on the side. He goes, yeah, dad, it drives up the wall. It's got like a sticky track and it drives up the wall. And when the remote control tank gets to the top of the wall, then the wings come out and it flies back down to the ground. And I was like, you're kidding me. He goes, no, it's awesome. The tank with the sharks on the side, remote control goes up the wall and flies down. I'm like, all right, I probably can't afford that, but I'll take a look. So I start to do my investigation, right? I go to Toys R Us. I'm looking in the remote control section. I look in the army section. I can't find anything that looks like what he's talking about. I look on Amazon. I do a Google search. I, nothing. I can't find anything, right? I go back to Toys R Us. I talk to the guy there. I'm like, have you heard of like a remote control tank with sharks on it that flies down off the wall? And the guy's like, what are you talking about, you know? I'm trying to find this present for my kid, you know? So finally, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to tip my cards. I didn't want Hank to know I was thinking about buying it. I didn't want to give it away, but I needed to know where he saw it. So I go back to Hank. And I said, Hank, man, you know that, you know that tank thing you told me about? He goes, yeah, the one that goes up the wall with the wings? And I was like, yeah. I said, where did you see that? Like, did you see that in a store? Or was it like on a commercial on TV? Or does one of your friends have it? Or I, I said, I, I kind of need to know like where you saw it. And he goes, in my mind. I'm like, hey, guess what? I'm not going to be able to buy you a Christmas present you invented, right? You can't just imagine stuff. 
And then I'm running all around all these places trying to find a thing that's in your imagination. You knucklehead, you're getting a soccer ball. That's how that went. (laughs) I wish that as Hank's dad, I had the power to do immeasurably more than all he can ask or imagine, right? But I don't. My power is limited. And when it comes to my own life, my own ability to enact the things that I see in this text that God wants for me, guess what? My power's still limited. I cannot do these things in my life, and I cannot do them in your life, and neither can you. But he is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. Is it possible that as you set your New Year's resolutions this year, you set the bar too low? That you set it down here on things you can do? Stuff that's possible for you? Things that you could go out this afternoon and check off the list? Maybe, just maybe, instead of setting our sights on things we can do this year, we should set our sights on things that only God can do in us. We should set our sights on the things, not that God wants from us, but the things that God our Father wants for us, that he would empower us in our inner being by his spirit to see Jesus settled down at home in our lives and that as we become rooted and grounded in him together, we would begin to apprehend something of the unknowable love of God and as we do, then we would be filled to a measure of all the fullness of God. And he's capable of doing it in our lives. Do you want that this year? Do you want to be filled to a measure of the fullness of God? So do I. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you that you were a God who not only came and took our sin, died in our place, and extended resurrection life to us by your grace, but that you're a God who continues to be involved, to care and to love about us, to meet us where we're at and to transform our lives. We thank you that you're capable of doing all things, and we're hungry to be like you. Would you do in us what we're incapable of doing? We thank you that you're a God who sees us and knows us and loves us, that transforms us. We pray that you do an incredible work in our lives, not only this year, but in the years to come that you would be glorified in us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.